0: This is the Policy Options Podcast. I'm Julia Bichel. It seems like every day we're seeing new changes that COVID-19 is bringing to the world of work. Firms are choosing to automate and digitize, and they're turning increasingly to remote and casual labor. Policymakers have helped people and businesses through the early days of this crisis. But now it's time to meet the future of work head on. Today on the podcast, we have Natalia Mishagina, research director of the IRPP's new program on the future of skills and adult learning. She'll be building on a recent IRPP study by Statistics Canada's Mark Frenette and Kristen Frank to talk about who's at risk of seeing their jobs transformed by automation. Next, we're bringing on Sunil Joe Hall to discuss how policymakers should meet the labour market challenges accelerated by COVID-19. Sunil serves as a fellow to the Public Policy Forum and the Brookfield Institute. From 2012 to 2019, he was Policy Director at the University of Toronto's Moet Centre. And in 2019, he was named Chair of the Expert Panel on Modern Labour Standards by the Federal Minister of Labour. Here are our conversations. Natalia. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Could I just get you to introduce yourself, uh, tell folks a bit about what you do?
1: My name is Natalia Mishagina, and I am a research director at the Institute for Research and Public Policy. I started this position in uh, January 2018, and from the moment I started, I began developing our new research program, and it was launched this year in June.
0: Exactly. So uh, that research program in particular is the future of skills and adult learning. What are some of the issues we can expect that new program to tackle?
1: Well, let me first tell you why we launched a new program. So as we all know, and sometimes from our own experience, the world of work is never static. So jobs come and go, economic sectors gain and lose importance, Technology changes our work environment and all of us are in the middle of it all. And we need to adjust to these changes and even use them as opportunities to improve our lives. And learning new skills is one of the ways to do it. But some of us may need help to succeed. So the new program that we launched seeks to answer three simple questions. Who, what, and how? Who needs help? What do we need to do and how to make it happen? So you see the questions are quite simple, but finding answers is not as easy.
0: Yeah. And so one of the first studies that came from that program is by Mark Frenette and Kristen Frank. And it's called The Demographics of Automation in Canada. Who is at risk? Now, before we get into the who, can you tell me what are people at risk of here?
1: People are at risk of having their jobs transformed because of automation. And whether we are talking about new types of robots or algorithms, new technologies can substantially change what people do at work and how they do it. So the study tells us who holds the jobs that are very likely to change if new technologies are adopted.
0: I mean, maybe I'm not the biggest expert in this, but when I read about automation and how it's going to impact the workforce. I find it's often framed in terms of job losses. This study, though, has a different angle. It's looking at job transformation. Why
1: is that? Well, you see, equating automation with job loss was the interpretation used some time ago when uh, a now well-known study by Frey and Osborne was released, and it was back in 2013 and they reported the risk of computerization of various occupations. And the authors of the study didn't interpret their results as job loss, but many people did. And possibly the society's previous experience with automation, when industrial robots replaced quite many people in manufacturing, it has played a role in how these results were understood. But more recent research emphasized that most, if not all, jobs consist of more than one activity or task. And even if some of the activities are replaced by a new technology, people may switch to other tasks or even take up new ones. I'll give you an example. I recall uh, last time you went to the airport, and I understand it was in the pre-pandemic times. So you checked in using a machine before it was done by a gate agent. But gate agents, they still exist is they just spend more time doing something else. For example, they can find a different route or quickly change your tickets if your flight is canceled or overbooked. And here, technology actually does two things at the same time. It replaces people and helps them to do their jobs more efficiently. So you see, technology has this power of changing jobs. And this is why the author suggest that We should reframe the way we look at it, that jobs are not likely to disappear, but they're likely to change.
0: Mm -hmm. Though in the airport example, there would be some jobs lost, right? So job transformation would include, you know, jobs are changing. Some of them are going to go away. Some of them are just going to stay in a different form. But it's hard to tell which will be which looking forward.
1: Well, looking forward, it's hard to tell anything. So we should look back. And if you want to know what happened in the past with a similar example, there is a famous example of uh, bank tellers. So, you know, the ATMs were developed in the 1970s and it's a classical example. And then many banks introduced them. So, instead of waiting in line to deposit your check with a teller or withdraw some money, we now go to the ATM. But what happened? Bank tellers don't need to do deposits and withdrawals as often as they did before. ATMs replacing bank tellers at this particular task made it cheaper to serve people. More people were interested in having access to bank services. And because of the ATMs, more banks could provide these services in various regions. So even though the number of bank tellers per branch went down the number of branches went up so now we have more bank tellers in the workforce but what do they do they now take up new tasks for example if you go to a bank teller they might tell you have you heard about our new service or you have a large amount of money in your checking account it can be invested do you want me to connect you with our financial advisor oh, I know you're traveling. You're just getting US dollars. You're traveling. Do you want to travel insurance? So they do what they didn't do before. They advertise their services. They connect you with the right specialist. And this is something, as I said, they didn't do before. So now you have access to these different services because some of their activities that were fairly routine were automated using the ATMs.
0: Yeah, it's funny you say that. That's exactly my last experience speaking to a bank teller was These specific questions. So it it rings true for me. Um, We talked about bank tellers. We've talked about people who check you in at the airport. But these are past examples. When we're looking forward, what are the jobs that we expect to be transformed in the future? And what type of people hold those jobs?
1: So, again, we are using the results of the study. And at the top of their list are office support occupations. And it's interesting that you framed the question in terms of future jobs, because office support occupations have already been affected by technology in the past, when computers were widely adopted. And in fact, there is a new research that shows that there is a link between computerization of many activities in these jobs and an increased demand for job candidates with university degrees who can either use the new technology or maybe even take the new tasks that weren't previously given to office support staff so these are occupations that have been going through very gradual transformation first because of the computers and now because of the software or different algorithms that are being used at work so they are on the top of the list so this is just one example but Overall, people who hold jobs uh, at high risk, they tend to be less skilled. They have lower educational attainment, and relatedly, they have lower literacy, lower numeracy. They hold jobs that are part-time, that are not well-paid. And also, older people tend to hold these jobs.
0: And so, looking forward, how much of the workforce could this affect?
1: Well, according to this study... If we look only at people whose risk is 70% or more, which is they define as a high risk, they estimate that between 10 and 11% of all employed Canadians could be affected, and another 30% are at medium risk, between 50 and 70%. And even though we call it medium risk, this is also important to keep in mind.
0: I mean, maybe I'm wrong here, but Some of the studies I've read have gone up to as much as 50% of jobs could be totally changed by automation. Why is that so much lower than other estimates we've heard before?
1: Well, what we've heard before were the estimates from that famous study by Fran Osborne. And these estimates were based on experts' predictions that the entire occupation can be replaced by technology. And what changed since then is the recognition that uh, even occupations they predicted to be at high risk, they often still contain a, a substantial number of tasks that are hard to automate. So once you take that into account, the number of jobs at high risk drops quite a bit. And in fact, there was a study in 2016 written for the OECD And they produced a much lower share of workers in jobs at high risk, at around 9%. 9% for the U.S. and 9% for Canada. And for Ned and Frank, they modified the method used in the study and applied it to the most recent data in Canada. And their result is similar. It's 10.6%. So in a sense, it confirms the, the predictions that the risk is actually much lower. Because looking at the entire occupation and not looking at kind of peculiarity of each occupation, how much importance and time is spent on tasks that can be automatable, it overestimates which jobs are at risk, or rather how many jobs are at risk.
0: So we're looking at people who are, who are older, who have less education, lower numeracy and literacy skills. And in the study, the authors even say that, you know, these are the the types of people who have been facing these issues in the past. Why does that matter going forward?
1: Well, you see, as as I said earlier, jobs change and workers need to adjust. And if they can't, they might be replaced by someone who is more suitable for the job. Right. So even if the job exists, it's done by a different person. So we care who is at risk and at risk of what because helping someone who already lost a job or reactive help may be different from helping someone who is at risk of losing it, right? It's proactive help. And different types of people need different type of help because some people may be lacking financial resources and others may be lacking information, right? So it's important to know who's at risk And when concerns about automation resurfaced a few years ago, it was commonly expected that the new technology can affect industries and jobs that were immune to automation in previous decades. And this would imply that uh, as a society, we might face challenges that were previously unknown. And what the study by Fernet and Frank shows is that people who might need help in the future... They have the same characteristics as those who were more vulnerable to poor labor market outcomes in the past. So in a sense, the challenges are more or less known, meaning that we've experienced them before. But the question is whether the existing policies can be applied as is, or maybe their coverage or delivery need to be altered. Uh, Maybe they need to be tweaked. Given that we are dealing with a new type of automation, maybe something else needs to be done. So this is why we need to know who we are dealing with and what kind of help they need.
0: Uh, Natalia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure.
0: Sunil, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
0: Before we saw the outbreak of COVID-19, we really heard a lot about potential disruptions to labor markets, right? Due to automation, due to changing demographics, climate change. Has the pandemic changed at all? How we should think about the future of work?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. As you say, I mean, these conversations have been going on for a number of years. And I think in the past four or five years, or probably since about 2015, 2016, there's been a real focus on particularly disruptive technologies and how they might alter the future of work. And I think as we are living in, I think it's probably now month six or seven of the pandemic, there are natural questions around, are some of those issues still relevant? or some of them more relevant now than ever? I mean, so some of the papers and thinking I've done around this, a constant theme I come back to is that the future of work is a challenge, and we certainly need to think about it. but we have some real issues with the present day realities of work in Canada and many other advanced economies. so I mean if you look at things like income inequality, things like wage stagnation, increases in precarious work, i mean these are all issues that we've been grappling with for a number of years, in some cases decades and I think the real issue is how is covid going to potentially accelerate some of those issues? i mean I think for example, of digitization of the economy. I mean, we've seen it happen in kind of fits and starts over the past 30 years or so, but a lot of sectors have seen a significant acceleration in terms of digitization of their operations in the past several months. I mean, a lot of commentators have said that you're seeing years worth of digitization happen in a span of months. And I think, I mean, the other big issue that I'm particularly focusing on in terms of a potential consequence of the pandemic is how will this accelerate the growth of non-standard forms of work? So the so-called gig economy, folks who are in part-time, temporary forms of employment. I mean, those have been in a kind of steady state of increase over the past number of decades. I mean, it's stabilized a bit in the past 20 years or so. But as we look at a economic environment going forward in which a lot of firms are going to be very uncertain about their future prospects, they might be hesitant because there could be future lockdowns due for public health reasons. If we experience a second wave in the winter, for example, uh, how likely is it that those firms are going to bring people back to work in full-time permanent roles is probably not high. I mean, you're more likely to see people come back in part-time temporary types of roles. And I think you also layer onto that issue of remote work. I mean, that's gone up uh, significantly in the past Number of months. So, will that also accelerate the use of online labor platforms where a firm might think, well, now that you're not coming in physically to the office, we don't really care if you're in Mississauga or Mumbai now. So, we'll just kind of outsource some of your work to a a lower cost, equally high quality provider. So, I think that's another piece we need to keep in mind here.
0: You mentioned digitization, the rise of gig work, all of these trends that we're looking at right now being accelerated by COVID. And, you know, it's it's interesting because the federal government has had this pretty massive response to the crisis, right? But it's sort of focused on these income support programs, getting people through the pandemic, not necessarily planning for all these changes, how they're going to affect the labor market when people are starting to go back to work. And so... There's this opportunity maybe to prepare for what could be a new world of work. Like in Quebec, the government there actually incentivized firms to keep employees on the payroll during COVID and use the time off for training. Are there programs like that that are worth adopting in other provinces if businesses are forced to shut down again?
2: I think that's a really great question. And I mean, I think it's something we should be looking at. I mean, the reality of the situation is, Even pre-pandemic, we know that we've got significant challenges around skills training in Canada. So, for example, we invest significantly less than some of our advanced economy peers in terms of skills training, active labor market policies. The quality of those programs is often quite poor. Um, So, I mean, in Ontario, for example, the Auditor General has conducted a... Study, I think it was in 2016 or so, that uh, found that fewer than 40% of Employment Ontario clients were employed full time after completing skills training programming, and an even lower percentage found suitable jobs or jobs in their field as a result of skills training. We also have challenges around who's actually eligible for public employment service. Programming. Often that's tied to EI eligibility. And we know that a lot of folks who are in the gig economy, non standard workers, aren't eligible for EI, and then therefore they're not eligible for skills training either. And layered on top of that, we also know that many employers are spending less on skills training over the past number of years. And that's only likely to be another one of those cost centers that's going to be cut by employers in the midst of a recession. So, taking advantage of the fact If you can call it that, that people are off work and maybe they're uh, furloughed or on on the CERB or other forms of income support, and using that time to retrain them or upskill them for whether it's the role they're in now or roles they might be able to shift into post-pandemic or when the economy reopens more fully again, I think is something we really do need to look at. I mean, One of the big challenges around skills training, especially for small employers, often is that they say that they can't afford the time off for their employees to actually take the skills training programming. So, this pandemic presents that opportunity. I mean, the one thing a lot of employees have right now is time. So, I mean, if we're going to be subsidizing them to be off work, and as we should be, then we should also be subsidizing their skills training.
0: I mean, you highlighted that COVID-19, this pandemic, isn't just... A challenge, though it is a massive challenge. It's, it's also an opportunity for governments to put in kinds of policies that they might be reticent to normally or maybe wouldn't function as well. So there's this example in Quebec, right, of this skills training program. But are there programs in other jurisdictions, uh, not necessarily even tied to skills training, but just tied to labor market policies during the pandemic that we can be looking toward?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think a number of countries, I mean, it's obviously early days. So I mean, most countries have been focused on kind of maintaining services, which in a lot of cases has meant shifting services online. I mean, there are clearly challenges with face-to-face services when we're telling people to socially isolate and we don't want people coming to employment centers and and places like that. So I think what you've seen in many countries is a shift towards far more technology-based delivery uh, options and channels. And I think we've seen in some other countries like Korea, for example, I mean, they've taken a very inclusive approach to some of their employment service provision. Uh, so, for example, they're providing women with maternity leave allowances, childcare subsidies, if they're registered with employment centers such that they can obtain skills training supports. Italy's given childcare vouchers to parents who have infants during the public health lockdowns, and they're continuing that support. Beyond the lockdown, so that parents can get back to work. We're seeing a number of countries realize that models they had in place pre COVID wouldn't necessarily work in the current realities of employment service needs spiking, creating these kind of matching portals for high growth areas. I mean, we've seen that in France. They were having challenges, I think, in the agriculture sector because they had a shortage of foreign workers coming into the country. So they create an online portal to help recruit folks who are citizens or residents of the country to to fill those types of roles. So I think going forward, we're gonna see more of that, more technology, more kind of nimble approaches to employment service provision, more recognition of the challenges that individuals face I mean, obviously not that it's a good thing that this has happened, but I mean, I think there might be some good lessons coming out of this in terms of developing more digital, uh, flexible, adaptable programs in, in these spaces so that they can, they can meet the needs of people where people sit and not kind of force people to bounce amongst various bureaucracies when they're already in a stressful, challenging situation.
0: And hopefully as well learn for other challenges, right? Because these innovations during COVID can also help workers adapt to the challenges of automation, for example. Like uh, on the first half of the podcast, we talked about the fact that the workers who are at high risk of seeing their jobs transformed because of automation have the same characteristics as the ones who've really been hit hard by past changes in the labor market. So these include older workers, uh, workers with less education. As we look to these international examples and start to use this COVID period to really beef up our skills training in Canada, are those kind of workers, you know, the ones who've been hit hard in the past? Are those the ones we should be directing our current policy toward? And if these are the groups that have needed help in the past, you know, do we have models that we can draw on to really make sure that they're getting the support that they need as firms use this time to automate, to digitize, to change up their operations in some way?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely we need to take a bit of a nuanced approach to some of these policy approaches. We can't just assume that everybody's being affected equally by some of these transformations. We know that Women, recent immigrants, young people, racialized minorities, indigenous people are all being hit harder by the economic fallout from COVID. And they're likely, if they do lose their jobs, going to have a harder time getting back into the labor market as well. So, I mean, there's been some good research from folks like Henry Hsu at University of British Columbia. I mean, he's looked at automation over a number of years in the United States. I mean, he found with some of his colleagues that close to 90% of job loss in recent recessions has taken place in routine occupations and that automation doesn't necessarily occur at a slow, gradual pace. I mean, this happens in bursts and some of those bursts and concentrations are focused in recessionary times. And obviously that's what's happening now. So, I mean, we can expect that coming out of this, there will be fewer of those kind of middle-skill, routinized jobs uh, and we need to think about who is going to be impacted by that, what types of workers are in those roles and what types of opportunities or roles might we be able to transition them into. So, I mean, I think that's something that we absolutely need to pay attention to. And there's certain sectors I think that we can already tell have been hit very hard and are likely to take quite a while to recover if they do recover fully ever accommodation, food services, retail, tourism, And in a number of those areas, I mean, you do see kind of disproportionate representation amongst certain of those groups that we talked about earlier. So we need to make sure that the policy approaches that we're adopting take note of that. I mean, more than take note of it, I mean, kind of completely recognize that reality. And and we go out and we figure out what types of approaches are going to work for let's say like a 35-year-old woman who is a high school graduate and has been working at a restaurant for 15 years as a server, for example, or a recent immigrant who maybe started up their own retail shop in in a small community and now that doesn't have kind of a bright future in that area. So, I mean, how do we help those people ladder their skills and the experiences they've got into some of the growth areas that we can anticipate over the years ahead? And then that's tricky because, I mean, there's so much uncertainty around – where jobs will be and what kind of jobs they're going to be and how do, how do we kind of tag our training approaches to connect to those job opportunities. So, I mean, I think it's a big challenge, but we absolutely do need to take an inclusive, broad approach to designing policies and interventions that work for everybody and that aren't just kind of targeted at the 50th percentile person in the kind of an imaginary policy scenario.
0: You talked about job loss due to automation, and I think this is the the way that we often talk about it, because this is the way that we often see it happening. But there's this other side of the coin that parts of people's jobs are going to be automated, but parts of them might not. And, And there's the potential for job transformation instead of just job loss. If we approach automation from that perspective, thinking about how we can entice firms to retain workers and see that transformation instead of just a massive job displacement. Does that change our policy approaches at all?
2: It does to some extent, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily. Because I mean, if somebody is in a role currently or six months ago, they were in a particular type of role. If that role is eliminated, we need to find that person something else to do. But also if that role is radically transformed in a way that uh, the person's not capable of necessarily performing the role anymore, we also still need to invest in that person and make sure that they have the skills necessary to do that type of role. So I mean, I mean they're kind of two sides of the same, the same coin. And I think we need to take account of the fact that as we as we talked about earlier, I mean digitization is accelerating rapidly. I mean almost all roles, and I mean I think most people are kind of going out and about nowadays can see it. I mean almost every job you you see out there now has more digital elements being layered upon it on a monthly, if not an annual basis. And some of those things are things that people can pick up on the job and they can kind of learn as they go. And some of them, I think going forward, aren't going to be as easy to pick up uh, on the go. So how do we make sure we're equipping people with those essential skills such that uh, they're comfortable doing those jobs? Uh, we also want to make sure employers, obviously, who are kind of right at the coal face of these issues have uh, the capacity and the willingness to train people. Uh, and again, the challenge there is for a lot of small employers, they don't feel they have the time that they can kind of provide these opportunities or give people the time off. So, I mean, how do we make sure that uh, we're supporting employers and maybe through sectoral approaches, we're making sure that uh, a number of small employers in a particular area can, can kind of band together, group together and take advantage of training opportunities that they don't have to custom design individually for each 10-person firm in a particular area the vast majority of companies in Canada have fewer than a hundred employees. I mean, we've seen different governments in the past try different incentives to get firms to provide that training on their own. It hasn't really worked super well thus far. So I mean, it's something we could certainly revisit now, I think in terms of maybe it's not the firms providing the training, but maybe it's the firms kicking in a portion of uh, the funding or some time off for employees if they feel they need to upskill uh, that. I mean, we've, been facing productivity challenges for a number of years now in Canada. And I think that's only going to persist even more going forward. So how do we make sure that our workforce uh, is as skilled as possible to compete in a digital global economy? And I, th- I think uh, the skills piece is an essential part of that, even if it doesn't seem kind of at a micro level, each individual job is essential to that kind of skills upgrading. I think in aggregate, we need to think about Uh, how we're moving higher up the global value chain and not kind of staying on the service provision kind of lower end of the equation there. So it's a big challenge and I don't know if there's an easy answer to it, but it's certainly something that we we need to think about.
0: Not to make that big challenge more complicated, but you mentioned the gig economy earlier on. And I'm wondering how that all fits in with things. If there's a growing casualization of work or fewer people are necessarily tied to firms, I guess, how how do we build policy for that kind of uncertain world of work?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the gig worker question is a tricky one, because, I mean, on the one hand, there are situations and realities where that is a completely viable and kind of welcome form of work. But I, I think what we're starting to see is that some firms and some platforms are starting to take advantage of the fact that labor laws are kind of fuzzy around who is an independent contractor and who's an employee and trying to shift more people into independent contractor roles where they have less responsibility in terms of employment standards protections and and things like that. So I think one easy thing we can do is tighten up some of those definitions and make the presumption that people are employees unless proven otherwise. And there's a lot of different ways of doing that. It's trickier when we look at how do we help folks who are consistently in that gig workspace who don't have a quote-unquote employer to upgrade their skills. I mean, I think looking at expanding the Canada training benefit so that it better covers some of those folks, raising the amount of the Canada training benefit is a win-win. I mean, it helps the person. It also helps the government later on in terms of income tax revenue, productivity, and all of those types of good things that governments want to want to see increase in the years ahead. So I think that's one one area to look at.
0: Yeah, so we've been talking about governments a lot and the way forward of trying to sort through all these complex issues and build a coherent policy for the folks who need it. That's going to be really tough, especially in the middle of this global pandemic. But you and your research have helped government work through these kinds of issues. I'm wondering, from your perspective, what piece of the puzzle are they missing right now? Like, what do you think they need to know?
2: Yeah, that's a really important question. I mean, I think you can look at that from a sectoral point of view. I mean, we've talked about things like EI and skills training, and they need to be modernized, obviously. The thing that's probably a little bit overlooked, though, is more the cross-cutting approach to how we modernize the delivery of government services and the development of government policies in Canada. Uh, I think in some ways we're falling a little bit behind in terms of innovative approaches to public administration. I mean, the obvious area here that people focus on is digitization. So, I mean, how do we make sure that we've got the technical infrastructure and the people capacity to deliver services online and and take full advantage of things like AI, blockchain, cloud computing, uh, and with people with the right skills and capabilities to implement and adopt those types of technologies. So, I mean, that's one piece. But I think there are a number of other areas where we can look that are equally important. So, I mean, some examples of those are things like making sure that uh, we're taking full advantage of things like behavioral insights. So, nudge thinking and making sure we're designing systems in a way that we're making it easy for people to choose the outcomes that are in the public interest and in people's own interests. Uh, and things like that are particularly important right now. And we're introducing so many new income support programs. It's tricky for people to understand what is even available to them. So kind of clearer communication, making desired pathways easier to take uh, is, is one thing we should be looking at. Expanding the use of outcomes-based funding approaches is another key area. So in the example of retraining initiatives, back-to-work initiatives. I mean, government spend a lot of money that's kind of provided to third-party providers. So how do we make sure we're funding and rewarding those providers who are hitting the types of outcomes we really want to reach? Uh, Third area is integrating service delivery approaches more effectively, both within government. So like, let's say within a provincial government, uh, their housing ministry and their child and youth ministries and their social assistance ministry so that they're interacting in a way that is easy for the client. So the client kind of just has one door into all of the supports that that level of government provides. And then the trickier part of that is obviously between levels of government. So the federal, provincial and municipal governments are speaking with one voice in terms of policy structures and program availability so that a citizen's not having to navigate multiple complex structures as well. And I think the other piece that's really important that COVID has really thrown into stark relief is the fact that we need to get a lot better at thinking ahead, kind of what are the plausible scenarios that we might be facing in the years to come uh, across a range of different areas and making sure that we're using things like design labs, foresight exercises to stress test policy interventions and make sure they'll be reliable and useful in a a range of different possible futures, particularly in an environment where none of us really know in 12 months what the economy is going to look like. So I I think those are some of the opportunities to really build a better public administration and a better public infrastructure in Canada for policy and program delivery. And I think... A lot of people are talking about kind of let's build back better, uh, and that's great to say it, and I hope we do. But if we don't invest in and think about the structures and processes that we're using to develop all of these new policies and programs, we're not going to build back better. We've got to we've got to invest in the pipes and the kind of boring behind the scenes stuff to to see those better outcomes too. So I think those are some of the areas I would I would emphasize for for policymakers.
0: I mean, the whole point of this podcast, right, is to talk about all those maybe less exciting behind the scenes parts of policy that are super important for actually delivering it well. Sunil, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
2: No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
0: Once again, a big thank you to Natalia Mishagina and Sunil Johal for joining us on this episode of the Policy Options Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the study Natalia was referencing, you can find that online at IRPP.org under the title, The Demographics of Automation in Canada, Who is at Risk? You can also learn a lot more about the future of skills and how COVID-19 will accelerate labor market trends from Sunil's reports for the Public Policy Forum. You can find those online at ppforum.ca. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us here at the podcast, you can shoot us an email at policyoptions or find us on social media. We're under the handle at IRPP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. My name is Julia Bujal. Thanks so much for listening.